and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shantae Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. Listen, it is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and we are back in the work of James H. Cone, Black Theology and Black Power. We are more than halfway through his writing, and we are looking at the white church and black power. Um, We're going to be looking at today black power in American theology, and uh, we'll try to come to a end on this chapter. Looks like we got a little bit, just a few pages to read today that will get us to the end of this chapter. The chapter is the white church and black power, but we're reading the last section, black power in American theology. Also, we are going to hopefully make it over to Carved in Ebony today, where we are going to continue to look at uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs' legacy. Nanny Helen Burroughs' legacy. All right. And so let's see. Let's see. Who are we? Who do we want to start with today? Okay, since Nanny is a little bit shorter, we'll start off with her story first. And that way we can close out her chapter. The author here talked about how Nanny uh, Helen Burroughs left a legacy of doing rather than just speaking. Um, And she goes on to talk about having a faithful platform. So we'll start there. She says, I am a millennial. I feel no shame in that declaration. I was born in 1990 and it is what it is. But part of belonging to that often critiqued generation is that I'm uniquely aware of my platform and have been since early adulthood. No longer does one need to be the founder of several prestigious organizations, a proven author and thinker, or a professional to have a say in everyday discourse. We have arrived at a moment in history when every person in America is allowed to have a voice as long as he or she has internet access. Well, we know that's not precisely true because we've seen how people's voices have been shut down this past week, have we not? So you can have somewhat of a say until the larger majority thinks that what you're saying is not to be said, and then the social platforms will shut you down. All right, let's continue. Our Facebook pages, Twitter feeds, curated Instagram videos, and whatever new social platform will be trending by the time these words are published give us a sense of authority before we've even been tested. If you're anything like I am, it can often feel threatening. I open my Twitter with fear and trembling, debating over the wording of every mundane update, trying to make sure that nothing I'm going to say will offend the wrong people trying to make sure that everything I want to say reaches the ears of the right people and care is good. God's word talks about having care in our speech. But so often that care is more about man's glory than God's. It's about curating an image. I want to be seen a certain way, she says. I want to be branded a certain way. Often that brand has kept me from speaking out on certain issues, using certain verbiage or confronting certain people. 
I have a box and I'm comfortable in it. But Nanny Helen Burroughs' words don't always fit in my box. Her words don't always fit into anyone's box. Least of all the 280 character Twitter box that so often defines today. Take, for instance, her response to Billy Sunday, the most popular evangelist of his era, when he proposed teaching a segregated revival service, where I might have written a subtweet about how I would not attend a segregated service, Nanny addressed Billy Sunday directly. She said, you must be under the impression that the colored people of this city want to hear you. <laughs> this is not true. However, they may be willing to arrange a performance at one of their own churches if the weather is favorable, but we cannot promise even under favorable weather conditions to have any intelligent Negroes see and hear you. Those who might attend would be just as ignorant as the Negroes in Atlanta who accommodate you. Do we all need to approach conflict the same exact way as Nanny Helen Barrows? I hope not, because personality-wise, I could not be less like this woman. And like Sarah Stanley and Elizabeth Freeman before her, she was not perfect. However, that does not mean I don't have much to learn from her legacy. She was not just an empty talker, but was rather a doer. And that is a litmus test for hypocrisy if I've ever heard of one. As easy as it is to rattle off a tweet about my opinion, am I putting my money where my mouth is? If I critique something, am I willing to work to fix it? If I critique someone, am I invested in their growth? If I point out a problem, am I willing to invest time and energy to repair it? Because Nanny was. She did not sit far off and lambast the black community for not meeting her standards. She got elbow deep in the community and discipled countless young women. She did not nitpick the government as an uninvolved citizen. She rolled up her sleeves and got to work to steer her country. She talked a lot. She acted even more. An image consciousness was not one of her personality traits. In fact, her biggest worry in life was that she wasn't doing enough. Mm. Nanny's words never fail to challenge me. Sometimes they challenge my long-held assumptions. Sometimes they challenge my inactivity. Sometimes they challenge my laziness. Sometimes they challenge me to speak up. And sometimes they just challenge my patience because I disagree with the way that she says certain things. But I cannot disagree with this woman's work ethic. And I cannot disagree that the fact that hers is a name I never knew is one of the tragedies I'm most excited to write for others in these pages. Black women are not a monolith. Of course not, comes my immediate agreement to that statement. But if that is true, then Nanny should be embraced as a sister, not side-eyed as too much of a challenger. It is completely possible to disagree with some of her thoughts about respectability while lauding her consistency, her work ethic, and her devotion to Christ and his people. Nanny died at the age of 82. At this writing, I have just entered my 30s. She lived and thrived in a historical moment that I cannot imagine. And she spent many days of her life paving the way for me to be able to grow up in a world where I have a voice, even if it dissents from hers in some ways. And for that, I am forever grateful. Nanny once said, the Negro woman totes more water, 
hoes more corn, picks more cotton, washes more clothes, cooks more meals, nurses more babies, mammies more Nordics, supports more churches, does more race uplifting, serves as mud seals for more climbers, takes more punishment, does more forgiving, gets less protection and appreciation than do the women in any other civilized group in the world. Where's the organ for that? <laughs> Nanny entered into glory, a shining example of this very sentiment. She did it all, paving the way for us to do our part behind her. It is a privilege to stand in her shadow. This is the legacy of Nanny Helen Burroughs. I am reading from Carved in Ebony. This is a new book that's out. Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. And it is particularly from the um, Christian tradition that she is writing about. All right. We're hopping back over into James H. Cone, Black Theology and Black Power. Let's see what James Cone has to say today about Black Power in American Theology. This man's book. As we have read through his writings, um, he is known as the sometimes the grandfather, sometimes the godfather, depending on who is talking of liberation theology as we know it today. Um, he was the one that was formulating these ideas and writing about these ideas um, before many of the people came along that we sort of hear about today in Christian circles. Many of them studied cone. So I always tell people, if you're listening to people who say they're of the liberation theology or black liberation theology uh, school, go back to James Cone because that's the origin point for a lot of what is being said and talked about these days. Ironically, as we have been reading through his work, it really feels like he is talking to us directly in 2022 which is an indication that a lot has not changed. Yeah. So let's begin. In a culture which rewards patriots and punishes dissenters, it is difficult to be prophetic and easy to perform one's duties in the light of the objectives of the nation as a whole. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> these people don't want prophets these days. They want glitter and thousand dollar money lines. Nevertheless, let us read. This was true for the state church of Germany during the Third Reich. And it is true now of the white church in America as black people begin to question seriously their place in this society. It is always much easier to point to the good amid the, amid the evil as a means of rationalizing one's failure to call into question the evil itself. It is easier to identify with the oppressor as he throws sops to the poor than to align oneself with the problems of the poor as he endures oppression. Moreover, the moral and religious implications of any act of risk are always sufficiently cloudy to make it impossible to be certain of right action. Because man is finite, he can never reach that state of security in which he is free of anxiety when he makes moral decisions. This allows the irresponsible religious man to grasp a false kind of religious 
and political security by equating law and order with Christian morality. Well, my goodness, that is exactly what's still going on in our society today, is it not? If someone calls his attention to the inhumanity of the political system toward others, he can always explain his loyalty to the state by suggesting that this system is the least evil of any of the other existing political states. He can also point to the lack of clarity regarding the issues, whether they concern race relations or the war in, just fill in the blank, but at that time it was the war in Vietnam when he wrote this, but now it's the war in Ukraine, right? This will enable him to compartmentalize the various segments of societal powers so that he can rely on other disciplines to give the word on the appropriate course of action. This seems to characterize the style of many religious thinkers as they respond to the race problem in America. Therefore, it is not surprising that the sickness of the church in America is also found in the mainstream of American religious thought. As with the church as a whole, theology remains conspicuously silent regarding the place of the black man in American society. In the history of modern American theology, there are few dissenters on black enslavement and the current black oppression among the teachers and writers of theology. And those who do speak are usually unclear. Too often their comments are but a replica of the current cultural ethos, drawing frequently from non-theological disciplines for the right word on race relations. More often, however, theologians simply ignore the problem of color in America. Hmm. Yeah, lots of colorblind theology happening these days. Any theologian involved in professional societies can observe that few have attempted to deal seriously with the problem of racism in America. It is much easier to deal with the textual problems associated with some biblical book or deal objectively with a religious phenomenon than it is to ask about the task of theology in the current disintegration of society. It would seem that it is time for theology to make a radical break with its identity with the world by seeking to bring to the problem of color the revolutionary implications of the gospel of Christ. So one of the reasons why Cone is essentially laying this out is because at the time, nobody was really willing to contextualize what was happening to, the, to black people in terms of their racial experience in America and put it into any kind of context with the gospel. It is time for theology to leave its ivory tower and join the real issues which deal with dehumanization of blacks in America. It is time for theologians to relate their work to life and death issues, and in so doing, to execute its functioning of bringing the church to a recognition of its task in the world. For the sickness of the church in America is intimately involved with the bankruptcy of American theology. When the church fails to live up to its appointed mission, it means that theology is partly responsible. Therefore, it is impossible to criticize the church and its lack of relevancy without criticizing theology for its failure to perform its function. Theology functions within the church. Its task is to make sure that the church is the church. The mission of the church is to announce and to act out the gospel it has received. When the church fails in its appointed task by seeking to glorify itself rather than Jesus the Christ, 
It is the job of theology to remind her of what the true church is. For theology is that discipline which has the responsibility of continually examining the proclamation of the church in the light of Jesus Christ. Dogmatic theology is the scientific test to which the Christian church puts herself regarding the language about God, which is peculiar to her. The task of theology then is to criticize and revise the language of the church. Oh gosh, did you say revision? (laughs) Nobody wants revision these days. It is what it is, what it is, what it is, and don't tell us anything otherwise, right? This includes not only languages uttered speech, but the language of radical involvement in the world. The church not only speaks of God in worship, but as it encounters the world in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the task of theology to make sure that the church's thoroughly human speech, whether word or deed, agrees with the essence of the church. That is, with Jesus Christ, who is God in his gracious approach to man in revelation and reconciliation. The church cannot remain aloof from the world because Christ is in the world. Theology then, if it is to serve the need of the church, must become worldly theology. This means that it must make sure that the church is in the world and that its word and deed are harmonious with Jesus Christ while it is in the world. So, are we supposed to be, and again, we've already defined what church is, it's ecclesia. We're not talking institution, we're not talking systems, we're not talking uh, denominationalism, we're talking ecclesia. All right? Ecclesia, the people who belong to Christ. That's who we're talking about. Okay? So he's saying, right, that if we're going to be in the world as a body of believers, our word and deed still have to align and be harmonious with Jesus the Christ, who's supposed to be leading the ecclesia. We can't be saying, I'm in the world, but everything that we're doing is the antithesis of what Jesus the Christ would be doing. So as a believer, if I'm a, if I'm saying that I'm a believer in Christ and I'm in the world and someone were to go and look at what Christ did, and then they look at my actions and behaviors, would it align? That's the question we should all be asking ourselves if we name the name of Christ. Is my word and my deed in harmony with what Jesus the Christ is asking of us? Is it in harmony with what he actually was doing in the world or is it in harmony with my political party which may actually be doing some harmful things that is nowhere near in harmony with Jesus Christ let me continue to read it must make sure that the church's language about God is relevant to every new generation and its problems it is for this reason that the definitive theological treaties can never be written. Every generation has its own problems 
as does every nation. Theology is not then an intellectual exercise, but a worldly risk. American theology has failed to take on that worldly risk. It has largely ignored its domestic problems, particularly on race. It has not called the church to be involved in confronting this society with the meaning of the kingdom in the light of Christ. Even though it says, along with Tillich, that theology is supposed to satisfy two basic needs, the statement of the truth of the Christian message and the interpretation of this truth for every new generation. It has virtually ignored the task of relating the truth of the gospel to the problem of race in America. The truth of the gospel being related to the problem of race in America. And because it did not do that, right? A movement arose called Black Lives Matter. And guess who were the first people to get upset (laughs) with this arising movement that was a movement? We're not talking about the organization. We're talking about the movement that happened all over the world where people said enough is enough. We tired of seeing it. We tired of looking at it. We tired of seeing it on video. Enough is enough. A movement arose that began to address and call out the problem of race in America. And a lot of people of faith, right, jumped into the river of that movement. But it didn't start with a relating of the truth of the gospel. And so people found issue with it. People demonized it, right? Definitely there were some issues with the organization, But everybody who was a part of the movement didn't have anything to do with the organization. So though you might condemn the organization and what happened there, essentially the movement was leaderless. The lack of a relevant Risky theological statements suggest that theologians like others are unable to free themselves from the structures of this society. The close identity of American theology with the structures of society may also account for the failure to produce theologians comparable in stature to Europeans like Boltman, Barth, and Bonhoeffer. Some try to account for this by pointing to the youth of America. But that seems an insufficient explanation since other disciplines appear to hold their own. The real reasons are immensely complex, but one cogent explanation is that most American theologians are too closely tied to the American structure to respond creatively to the life situation of the church in this society. Instead of seeking to respond to the problems which are are unique to this country, most Americans look to Europe for the newest word worth 
theologizing about. Most graduate students in theology feel they must go to Germany or somewhere else in Europe because that is where things are happening in the area of theology. Little wonder that American theology is predominantly simply footnotes on the Germans. Theology here is largely an intellectual game unrelated to the issues of life and death. It is impossible to respond creatively and prophetically to the life situational problems of society without identifying with the problems of the disinherited and the unwanted in your own society. Few American theologians have made that identification with poor black people in America, but have themselves contributed to the system which enslaves black people. The seminaries in America are probably the most obvious sign of the irrelevance of theology to life. Their initiative in responding to the crisis of black people in America is virtually unnoticeable and still. Remember, Cohn is writing this in 1968, okay? Their curriculum generally is designed. Their curriculum is generally designed. When somebody keeps asking me, <laughs> Shante, you, I noticed that you do a lot of reading and you do a lot of study on your own. And, you know, have you thought about going to seminary and you mean uh, cemetery? I mean, seminary. I mean, seminary. I mean, that place, right? Listen to what James Cohn is about to tell you. I've had people who've gone, friends of mine who have been in seminary, who have been left there traumatized and had to rebuild their whole mind for two to three years after they left. They got a degree, though. They got a degree, but they got lots of racial trauma trying to get that degree. This is what he says. Their curriculum is generally designed for young white men and women who are preparing to serve all white churches. Now, there are a few seminaries now that have like um, a minor in certain studies that have to do with liberation theology or a couple of classes that tackle racism. But this really has not changed. The curriculum is designed for young white men and women who are preparing to serve all white churches. And even my black friends who have graduated, they have gone to serve in all predominantly white churches. And then they've had to recover from that trauma. So, I mean, if you want to spend several years learning something <clears throat> that is predominantly not talking about you and then go into a space with macro and micro aggressions, then, you know, if you feel called to that, I can't stop you, but I don't feel called to that. Only recently have seminaries sought to respond to the black revolution by reorganizing their curriculum to include courses, not have a premise that when you leave this space, you're going to come out understanding how to combat anti-blackness 
in religious spaces. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. Okay. They're organizing their curriculum to include a couple of courses in black studies and inner city involvements. And this is due almost exclusively to the insistence of the black students. Most seminaries still have zero courses, zero courses. This is still today in black church history. Now, you grew up in a black church and you go to seminary and there's no courses on what you grew up in. Unless you write one. <laughs> and their faculties and administrators are largely white. This is still true. And let's go one more step. And their faculties and administrators are largely white and male. This alone gives support to the racist assumption that blacks are either unimportant or not intelligent enough to lead in these spaces and teach in these spaces. In Europe, the situation seems to be somewhat different. Karl Barth's theology was born in response to the political and economic crisis of Germany. He began his career as a liberal theologian. He believed that the kingdom of God would soon be achieved through the establishment of a socialist society. He put his confidence in the latent resources of humanity and this meant that Barth, along with many liberal theologians of his day, believed in the adequacy of the religious man, the adequacy of religion, the security of the culture and civilization. The First World War shattered his hope of the kingdom of God on earth. The civilized man was supposed to be moving steadily, even rapidly toward perfection. That man had cast himself into an orgy of destruction, as he says. In the wake of the war came communism and fascism, both of which denied any Christian value. As a result of the war and its aftermath, Barth felt that the problem of man was much more desperate than most people realized and would not be solved simply by changing the economic structure. For a while, Barth was in a state of shock. And particularly, he was burdened with the task of declaring the Christian message to his congregation every Sunday after what had happened in his own society. What could he say? People did not want to hear, he was quite sure, his own man-made philosophy or his own opinions. In due time, he was led from his man-centered conception of Christianity to a thoroughgoing theocentric conception. He was led from trust in man to complete trust in God alone. He was convinced that he could not identify God's word with man's word. No human righteousness can be equated with divine righteousness. No human act can be synonymous with God's act. Even the so-called good which man does in the world counts as nothing in God's eyes. To identify God's righteousness with human righteousness is to fail to see the infinite distinction between God and man. The distinction between that which is human and that which is divine. This radical change in his theological perspective had nothing to do with abstract theological thinking, but with his confrontation with the real political economic and social situation that was happening in Germany at the time. In other words, his theology was birthed out of reality. 
It was the rise of a new political order that caused Barth to launch a devastating and relentless attack on natural theology. When American theologians picked up the problem, they apparently did so without really knowing that for Barth and his sympathizers, natural theology was not merely an intellectual debate, but an event, an event about the life and death of men. Observing the rise of Hitler during the 1930s, Barth saw clearly the danger of identifying man's word with God's word. To say that God's word is wholly unlike man's means that God stands in judgment against all political systems, not just the ones that you dislike or don't agree with. The work of the state can never be identified or confused with God's word. In Hitler's campaign against the Ashkenazim, an alien god dominated Germany. Men were being slaughtered on his altar. It was no time for caution or lofty objectivity of the matter. When Barth said no to natural theology, no blending of the word of God with the words of man or a despotic leader, the political implication was clear. Hitler is the Antichrist. God has set his face against the Third Reich. Americans have generally agreed that Barth's rejection of natural theology was a mistake. Is that because American theologians still see a close relationship between the structures of this society and Christianity, i.e. this was a nation birthed on Christian principles? As long as there is no absolute difference between God and man, it is possible to view America as the land of the free and the home of the brave. Despite the oppression of blacks, and as the Constitution has still enshrined its description of Native Americans as savages, as long as theology is identified with the system, it is impossible to criticize it by bringing the judgment of God's righteousness upon it. Barth's theology may serve as an example of how to relate theology to life. The whole of his theology represents a constant attempt to engage the church in life situations. Its notable development is clearly a response to the new problems which men face in worldly involvement. I have one more paragraph and I'm going to stop at this point. If American theology is going to serve the needs of the church by relating the gospel to the political, economic, and social situation of America, it must cut its adoring dependence upon Europe as the place to tell us that what theology ought to be talking about. Mm-mm-mm. I don't think we've done that yet. Some European theologians like Barth and Bonhoeffer may serve as examples of how to relate theology to life, but not in defining our major American issues. There is a need for a theology of revolution, a theology which radically encounters the problems of disinherited black people in America in particular, and the oppressed people of color throughout the world in general. As Joseph Washington puts it, 
In the 20th century, white Protestantism has concentrated its personnel, time, energy, and finances on issues that it has deemed more significant than the American dilemma. Pacifism, politics, liberal versus conservative controversies, prohibition, socialism, Marxism, labor and management aspects of economic justice, civil liberties, totalitarianism, overseas mission, fascism, war and peace, reorganization of ecclesiastical structures and ecumenical issues. It has overlooked the unique problem of the powerless black people. So I could, we could beg the question. We could beg the question. Is it still overlooking it? Because we know that it took the black church primarily and its leaders and it took laws to even get the white church to say, (laughs) okay, we'll stop being segregated. Please understand the majority of white churches did not willingly integrate. It was law. Please understand that the history of the Christian education school traces back to the fact that they didn't want to integrate. So they pulled their children out of public schools to create their own schools. That's where Christian education, as we know it today, that's what it was birthed out of. It was birthed out of people refusing to integrate. So the white church is never willingly like, da, 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 yes. Yes, black people should be equal. Yes, we want to integrate. It was not like that. I know there's a rewriting of history happening, but it was not like that. So we got to ask ourselves, if it didn't start with free will, what makes us think that we are further along than our predecessors. It didn't start with a free will wanting to come together with black people. I'm just saying. Do we have a few congregations here and there that are multi, I won't say multicultural, multiracial or multi-ethnic? Yes. But if we look at the overall history of white churches, Most of them are still primarily white. (laughs) There was not a willingness to integrate. It was by law. And so when you see some of the behaviors and you see some of the attitudes coming out of white Christian spaces or from white faces that say they are Christians, just keep that in mind. There was not a willingness to be along with their black brothers and sisters. It was by law. It was not by choice. 
<clears throat> and so guess what? If many of them get the choice, <laughs> if many of them get the law to roll back for them, don't you think they would go back to what they were before? Because, hey, it's the law. <laughs> so if we only do things, if, if we only make progress as a people of faith in this country by law, have we really made progress? Has it, are we still stuck with, I want justice, I want equality, I want all of these things because the law demands it? Or are we at a place where we say, even if the law doesn't demand it, I still know morally it's right. Will we still have the equality even if the law was not in place? And sad to say, I don't think we would. So I'm going to stop talking at this time. That is what I wanted to share today. Um, if you would like to respond to what has been said, you have some thoughts about it yourself. This is a dialogue. Uh, feel free to click on the camera and we will bring you in. If you have been listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. We will be back on today at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we are going to be having a conversation. We'll be in conversation with uh, Latoya Nicole who is an author, who is a belief therapist and a coach. And we're going to be talking about handling harmful people who are connected to those you love. How do you deal with that? All right. That's going to be our conversation a little later today, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you again for tuning in at this moment. And if you'd like to catch the dialogue, join us on Daring Dialogues IG page. Take care.